All right, well, if you can begin making your way back, grab your Bibles, find your seats. Let's head on over to James chapter 5. We are going to be closing down the book of James today. This will be the last sermon in the book of James. We're going to try to cover some ground, and we've got to tackle some, some really significant things. And I'm going to try to do so in a way that's, that's helpful, the way, a way that's understandable. Um, there, there's some massive theological um, ideas and thoughts and, and conclusions that are drawn out of our passage today. Time's not going to permit us to consider all of them. Um, one of the things that I always try and, and do is make sure that we, when we contend for and explain what we're for, not necessarily what we're against. I could spend hours out of this passage in James just walking you through what we're against and what we don't believe that others may believe, um, that's not entirely helpful. There's a place for that. There's a time for that. Um, but I always want what we communicate to, by and large, first and foremostly, be characterized about what we're for and us explaining what we're for and what we believe. And so we're going to aim to do that and, and along the way probably cite some distinguishments and some differences um, that others may have um, but let's read the passage. Let's pray. I, I think you're going to get there. You might understand why um, as we read the passage, we're going to just try to tackle this and why making sense of it's really that important. Um, let's go to verse 13 together, James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Well, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need you to help us to think well this morning. We need you to help us to understand what you've written, what you've revealed, what's been written through your servant James. And so, God, we just invite you to come and for your Holy Spirit to help us make sense of the text. God, I pray that you would guard my words and what I say from error. God, I pray that what I say would be accurate to what it is that you have said, that it would be truthful, it would conform to what you have said. And God, I pray that you would you'd give us a, a, a vision this morning of 
what this passage looks like is it's lived out in the church. God, help us to see your grace and your mercy and your, and your compassion overflowing in this text, that, that your character is revealed here. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand these words and understand more of your love for us. And in turn, Lord, pray that you'd help us to love you more. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm sure you heard it, and I'm sure you caught it. There, the words sick show up two different times in our text. The word save shows up. The word raised up shows up. The word healed shows up. And it really begs the question for us, all right, what does this text say about those who are sick and about healing? The word anointing shows up, and the word oil shows up. What does all of that mean how, if it is even applicable to today's church, how does that apply and what does that look like? I mean, those are some significant questions that we can ask ourselves as we approach this text. And, and by and large, there's, there's really two main streams of interpretation or interpretation errors, I should say. And we're going to try to avoid both this morning. So if that sounds like I'm trying to walk down the middle of the road, you're exactly right. I'm trying to walk down the middle of the road because there's one error on one side that sees this text needing to be interpreted so exacting that if there's not a physical healing, that somebody is to blame. That where healing doesn't occur, we now need to begin to finger point because somebody failed. Somebody didn't have enough faith because the prayer of faith will save the one. And so we got to figure out whose, whose issue it was. Was it the person who was sick? They didn't believe enough. Was it the person who was praying? They didn't believe enough. Did we not use the right oil? Did we not anoint in the right? I mean, these are some significant questions that crop out of this text where there may not be the physical healing that occurs. And there are ministries, there are churches that will teach that specifically. That if a physical healing does not happen, somebody is to blame because somebody didn't have enough faith. That's one error. An error on the other side is that we interpret this text so loosely that it becomes a passage that doesn't really apply to us at all. And there's really no functional way that this works itself out in the life of the church. And so how we arrive at that error is that we just kind of decide, well, okay, maybe that was then, or maybe it doesn't really mean what it says it means. And so, you know, we're not going to really pay that close attention to it. We're just going to let it kind of exist, but not really ever pay that much attention to it. So we don't really know how it actually will ever apply here. And none of you are ever going to actually call the elders and ask them to anoint you because we just don't have really any functional understanding of how these words make sense in 2016 here in the borough. That's another error. And so we're going to try to walk down the middle of the road. And we're going to just try to strike what I hope is faithful to the text and true to what God has said. So how we're going to do that this morning is that we're actually going to begin in verse 16, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to come back to verse 13, and we're going to just tackle the healing section really at the end. So we're going to skip a few verses, and then we're going to get to 
the healing towards the end. In verse 16, the word therefore leads off that verse. And what happens is that as James writes this, he is envisioning a community of believers that is unbelievably, intricately, deeply interconnected in each other's lives. And this crescendos up to verse 16. There are two main commands in this section of verses, verses 13 to 20. There are two commands that we would see in the Greek text that are written as enduring commands that all believers should be obedient to. Those are found in verse 16. It is the word confess and it is the word pray. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Those two commands are enduring. If we don't believe those are enduring, we've got to throw out every other command in the New Testament that is written the way those commands are. We would have all sorts of issues. I mean, we wouldn't even be Christian anymore. It's just hedonism run amok. Those commands are enduring commands. And what James does is he writes and envisions a community that is so deeply interconnected with each other's lives. Now, as we have tried to, over the last several years, clarify vision, mission, what is our purpose, we painted on a palette that is hanging behind me that one of the aspects of our ministry vision of accomplishing the mission to be disciple-making disciples is Christ-centered community groups. And last year, we had groups that functioned for a season, and you may have looked around and kind of wondered, where are the groups? Where are they? Are they functioning? Are they not functioning? The truth be told, they're, they're not functioning. It's been an area of our ministry vision. We've not necessarily been able to devote the time and attention and the resources to tackling at this point. And by and large, it serves as a constant reminder in my world that the work's not done. And a large factor in that is we, we need somebody who is willing to take that baton and go, you know what, I'm passionate about community groups, and I want to I I help the elders lead that aspect of the church vision and, and really own that and make that a ministry in an area that I'm going to serve in, and, and we'll see some things grow out of that, and I'm confident the Lord's going to provide somebody in the right time for us. But what we have said when we clarified what these groups were to do was they were to do this text on a far more intimate level than what we're capable of doing here this morning. And there, there's, an, there's a limit to the type of relational engagement we're able to have with one another on a Sunday morning, give or take two and a half hours of time. Well, these groups envisioned and would get after living life together, doing life together, that where there's care needed, care is provided. And so James envisions a community that's deeply interconnected to one another. As your church leaders have sought and, and really tried to pray through and clarify what that may look like for us, we think there's a part of that where we can live out the one another's here on a Sunday morning, but there's a degree that that gets limited. Can't, can't do it in the way that we think is entirely striking after the point the Bible wants us to live by. And so these community groups would be a place to do that. But it doesn't mean that this doesn't happen together. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. And what James writes and what he envisions is this community that is so deeply interconnected to one another that you know what they're willing to do? They're willing to actually confess their sins to one another. They're willing to pray for one another. 
They're willing to, to do these things, oftentimes things that we may not necessarily be willing to do. And so this text, and all of the pronouns are either plural or they're indefinite. James is writing to a group of people. He is not writing to any one particular individual or group of individuals. He is writing to a large gathering of individuals. And in verse 16, where this entire text crescendos, you have the central commands, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. He continues, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And what James does thereafter is he gives an example of the prophet Elijah, probably as a righteous person whose prayer was effective and had great power as it was working. Look at the example and what he says in regards to Elijah. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now let's just pause there because it's been written that Elijah was perhaps the most powerful of God's Old Testament prophets. Elijah didn't even die. He was swept away. Elijah was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, Old Testament prophet. And James makes a tremendous statement here on the front side and says, Elijah has a nature just like you. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now what is James intending for us to understand there. I think it's twofold. One is a very, very specific, and I believe the other is implied. The very, very specific intention of what he writes is for you and I to be encouraged to pray bold prayers. And that's the example he gives in regards to Elijah. He prayed for three and a half years that it would not rain, and it didn't. And then he prayed for rain and the rain came and the earth bore its fruit. The very specific instruction for you and I to understand and the reason why James uses Elijah as an illustration is so that we can understand that this man that was used by God to accomplish something tremendous had a nature just like ours. What does that mean for you and I? It means that we should be willing to pray bold prayers. That we shouldn't somehow classify Elijah at a different level of spirituality that we're not able to somehow obtain because we're not a prophet. Now he flattens that list. Because Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You pray bold prayers. The other implied instruction there for us and the implied place for that us to just focus on and understand is that if you know anything about Elijah's life, he had some really high moments. And one of those was praying three and a half years for no rain to come. And another one of those was where he was with the prophets of Baal. And he said, hey, get the altar, get the bowls, and then start getting the water. And he just says, all right, Lord, it's time. And just the, the whole thing gets consumed in fire. But right after that mountaintop moment... Elijah finds himself running for his life, fearful. Finds himself hiding in a cave, wondering why God would allow him to suffer such things. And I think we can, from Elijah's life and what James is doing, by using him as an illustration, understand that, you know what? 
those Old Testament prophets that we may look at and see as, as great men of God, they were just as susceptible to moments of fear and anxiety, moments of weakness. And there's encouragement there for you and I. There's encouragement on one hand for us to pray bold prayers because Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, but there's encouragement for you and I to, you know what, take heart when you have those moments when your faith feels weak because you're not the first and you're not the only. Some of these great men, great women that are listed in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, they experience those moments. You take heart when you experience those moments. So James wants us to understand that the prayer of a righteous person is effective as it is working. And the way he has used the word righteous throughout his entire book is that he intends for us to understand that word in the sense of how the Old Testament uses it. It's, it's different than how the Apostle Paul uses that word. For James, the word righteous really means godly. It means somebody who's living their life for the Lord. And so he, in chapter 1, says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He's, he's not talking about a forensic justification sense the way Paul would. He's talking about how when you and I are given to fits of anger, we're not honoring the Lord with our lives. We're not producing godliness in our lives. When he, in earlier in chapter 5, talks about how the righteous are being condemned and murdered, he's not talking about this idea that Paul would have. He's talking about godly individuals. And it's the same way here at the end of chapter 5. And if you really think through that understanding of his use of the word righteous, and then just kind of place that back into the context of the entire book. That's all James has been aiming for. All James has been after, all he has been aiming for is for us to live lives that are godly lives. And he's tried to help us understand very, very specifically what that looks like. And just consider, just if we took a, a, a list, he, in chapter 1, tells us to watch our tongues. He tells us to do the word, not just hear the word. He again tells us to watch our tongues. He tells us to care for widows and orphans. He, chapter 2, tells us to not show partiality on external differences. He, in chapter 3, tells us to watch our tongues. He tells us to not be jealous or selfishly ambitious. He tells us to not be worldly in chapter 4. He, again, tells us to watch our tongues. He acknowledges and tells us to acknowledge that the Lord is in control of tomorrow, whether we even live or die. In chapter 5, he tells us to patiently keep our eyes on Jesus, waiting for his return. He tells us to watch our tongues. He tells us to remain steadfast. He tells us again to watch our tongues. He tells us to pray like crazy. I mean, just watching our tongues shows up in every chapter of this book. But here's the idea, and here's, here's what I think this means. If you take what James has written, and you, you, you try to understand what he has written in chapters 1 to 5 up to, up to this point, and then you take this statement that the prayer of a righteous person is effective as it is working, and you use the illustration of Elijah as he does, here's what I think James is telling us. You know what? Radically pursue obedience and radically pray. Radically pursue obedience and radically pray. Now, Elijah was a man that I think we could see radical obedience in his life. Was it perfect obedience? By far. It was not perfect obedience. But he was willing to do 
what the Lord called him to do. And he had his moments of weakness, and there's encouragement for us in that. Here's a man willing to radically pursue obedience, and a man who was willing to radically pray. And James is telling us the prayer of a righteous person is effective as it is working. I think he's trying to get this community of believers to understand that how they live matters. And their lives lived in the pursuit of honoring the Lord matters. And it matters greatly. And it matters when it comes to the issue of prayer. Psalm 37.4 actually tells us to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The idea there is very similar to what I think James is saying. Radically pursue obedience, radically pursue delight in the Lord. And then I believe that Psalm 37 verse 4 text means that the Lord is actually going to place in your heart's desires. In your heart desires. And so then what you begin to want is reflective of what he wants. And you can see how that takes shape in this text in regards to prayer. You radically pursue the Lord. You radically delight yourself in the Lord. You radically watch your tongue. You radically work through and put into practice what James has painfully, over the last five chapters, very specifically given us. You're going to want to pray. And you're going to want to pray boldly. Because you have a heart that's after the Lord and delighting in the Lord. And James says, those prayers, those are powerful in their working. And James tells us that we need to be deeply engaged and involved in each other's lives. That we're willing to come and we're willing to confess sins to one another. We're willing to pray for one another. Now, I, I don't believe this means that next week you should all come with a list of sins to read during our prayer and praise Sunday. Okay? Private sins, I believe, should be confessed privately. There is wisdom in having a trusted friend or trusted friends that you can, in confidence, confess those things and share those things to. Public sins should probably be confessed publicly. But I don't believe James is saying, look, next week we need to come with a list and we're just going to all take turns and it's, it's going to be that type of morning. I'm not sure that's what he's saying at all. But he uses Elijah as this illustration for us to understand, look, there, there's, there, there's a power in prayer that is just as available to you as it was to him. And don't consider him to somehow be greater or anything different because he had a nature just like you. James continues in verse 19 in, in really this theme of deeply interconnected in one another's lives is, 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 is even seen and evidenced here. My brothers, if someone among you is wandering from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He again writes to the congregation. He says, you know what, you need to be so deeply interconnected and involved in each other's lives that you're willing to go bring back somebody who's wandering. And that's all of us. That's my brothers. He writes to the congregation. It's not just the pastor who makes that call. It's not just the elders who make that call. He says, it's you that makes that call. And when you know somebody's wandering or you haven't seen them for weeks on end, at a, as a part of our gathering, you make that call. And you follow up and, hey, 
We missed you. What's, what's going on? It may not be that they're wandering, but it may be that they're wandering. And their heart's far from the Lord, and you go and pursue. Now, I'm going to go and pursue because it's one of my functions and responsibilities as, a, as one of your shepherds. But James says this, it's your job as well. It's not just the pastor who makes that call. It's the congregation who makes that call. And you go after the wanderer. And you bring them back and you exhort them to come back and you encourage them to come back and you, 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 you pick them up and give them a ride if you need to and you, you bring them back and you walk in the front door with them. Whatever it looks like, you, you're so deeply engaged in one another's lives that you're, you're willing to do whatever it takes to bring back the one who's been wandering. This is community that James envisions. Community that's not just content of saying hi and shooting each other a smile on a Sunday morning, but, but being this involved in one another's lives. Now let's go back to verse 13, and we'll tackle in the time remaining healing. James says in the beginning of verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I told you there's two errors that really this text gets applied with, and one of them is to be so exacting that if a physical healing does not happen, that there's somebody to blame. And we got to go and we got to find whoever the one is to blame. And it may be the person who was sick. They just didn't have enough faith. They had enough faith that they would have been healed. And, and, and I, I've sat down with, with fellow pastors and, and, and asked them to help me understand their understanding of this healing theology that they had. And, and, and one of them told me that, that there was a guy that was in a healing line and he was two people away from getting prayed for, and he had a heart attack. And he sat there and he told me, like, it's just a shame he wasn't a little quicker in line. And there was somebody to blame. There was a finger to point. And, and really the other error is that we just make this text say something so loose that there's no way to understand how this applies today. And there's no functional way for this to get carried out in our midst and in our, in our community here. And, and so we're going to try to strike at a a middle road, one that I, I think is faithful to the text. And I'm not trying to do a bunch of theological gymnastics with you. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. And, and within, uh, within kind of conservative theological circles, there's, uh, there's really two main then ways that this text gets understood in regards to the one who's sick. Either they're physically sick, which is then going to be where there's healing, then it's a physical healing, or they're spiritually sick. They have weak faith. And so then you, you take out the, the aspect or the, the ability for physical healing to be a part of the consideration because it's just that they have weak faith. And, and I, I would submit to you that I don't think we can draw a hard and fast conclusion in either direction. If you look at verse 14 in your Bibles, you're going to see the word sick. If you look at verse 15 in your Bibles, you're going to see the word again, sick. Those two words are two different words. We translate it into one word in English, but they're two different words as 
James wrote them. If you look at verse 15, you're going to see the word save. If you look at verse 15, you're going to see the word raise. If you look at verse 16, you're going to see the word healed. And I looked at every one of these words as they occurred in the entire New Testament this past week. And I sat down and I tried to classify them. Is it physical healing? Is it a physical sickness? Is it a spiritual sickness? Or is it a spiritual healing? Or is it an eternal healing? Or is it an eternal salvation? And how, how do these words play themselves out? And quite frankly, folks, I don't think we can draw hard and fast conclusions by just looking at the definitions of the words. Because the word sick in verse 14, by and large, has a definition that means physically sick. But the word save in verse 15, by and large, has a definition that means eternal salvation. The word healed in verse 16 means, by and large, physical healing. But the word raise in verse 15 means an eternal resurrection. And it's used most frequently in regards to Christ rising from the dead and believers having the hope of a resurrection from the dead. And so we're, we're left with trying to understand the context of what James wrote. And then one of the tried and true principles of Bible interpretation, Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's part of the reason why we go through Scripture and we try to understand how is this word used in other places? What does it mean in other places? Because that will help us understand what it means here. But then the conclusions that we draw should be in line with other texts and other places. And so James says, if anyone is sick, let him call the elders and let them come and pray over him. I want to just point out one brief thing for you. James does not say, let them call the pastor. He says, let them call the elders. And he says the word and uses the word elders in the plural. And maybe 45 minutes, we're going to be voting on creating a plurality of elders Passages like these make this vote in 45 minutes significant. There is a group of qualified, godly men that the church recognizes and says, we believe the Holy Spirit has made you elders of Christ's church. Because James says, let him call the elders. He does not say, let him call the pastor. Now, if you want to place that call to me, great. I'm going to be on the phone with those elders. We're going to come together. That's what the text tells us to do. and It's not just one. It's a plurality. But what those elders are then to do is to pray. The one who is sick has the responsibility of calling the elders, has the responsibility of saying, will you pray for me? I'm sick. What type of sickness is it? Is it a spiritual sickness? Is it a physical sickness? Quite frankly, I think it could be both. And I think where there is a physical sickness, you probably also have very, very real and present the opportunity for there to be a weakening of faith, a struggling with what, what's the Lord doing? And it's very, very similar at that point then and, and, and draws and brings to mind what James wrote in chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. So yeah, the testing it very may well yield and, and, and leave a, a spiritual weakening. But the point of the trial, as James tells us in chapter 1, is that you may grow in your faith. 
So is it a physical? Is it spiritual? It, quite frankly, is probably both. And the elders are called in to pray. And we're to pray over the one who is sick, to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. This anointing, it's not anything that's magical. It's not anything that's superstitious. What kind of oil does it have to be? I don't think it has to be any particular oil. I mean, if I had my choice, I'd probably pick oregano oil because then it would smell like a really fine Italian restaurant in the room. But some of you got essential oils. We got all sorts of options about what oil we pick. See, what the oil does is it becomes a physical sign of a spiritual reality. I believe the oil is, 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 is used to serve as a reminder for the one who is sick that, you know what, they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's not going anywhere. They've been indwelt and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he's not leaving They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that's a sealing that promises that the work the Lord began in the moment of salvation will be accomplished in His time and through His purposes. So we anoint with oil, not because there's any magic in the oil, not because there's any significance physically in that. But we anoint with oil because there's a spiritually important set of truths to remind the person who's sick with. See, we gather and we pray over them and we remind them, you know what? God has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten about you. Because you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are a part of God's royal priesthood. You are one of his sons or one of his daughters. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That What may happen and what you may be struggling with physically right here and now, you know what? It ultimately is not worth comparing to the glory that one day you're going to experience when God does complete his work in you. And one of the interesting things that we see, if we looked at every, every usage of those words that I gave you earlier, sick, sick, heal, raise, and save, is that in the Gospels, they, they by and large have a physical dimension to them. Jesus healed the sick man, and he raised up. You get to the letters, you get to the book of Acts and beyond, they take a spiritual dimension where the focus is, is far more on eternity than it is the physical. It's one of the interesting things that we observed in just looking at the text. The elders anoint with oil and they pray because there's something spiritually significant that the one who is battling the illness, perhaps struggling and even wondering what the Lord is doing, needs to be reminded of. And that is that God has not left them. That the trial of various kinds that they find themselves facing, that God is actually using that in their lives to produce something that would otherwise not be there. And it's called steadfastness. And steadfastness gives way to perseverance. And perseverance completes its work so that they will be or you will be perfect and mature, lacking nothing. See, we anoint with oil because there's tremendous spiritual truths that the one who is struggling needs to be reminded of. And we pray. And we pray boldly. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, that 
If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But don't be a double-minded man. Ask without doubting. What's the doubting? What's the non-double-mindedness? I said when we began this entire series as we walked through that passage, some will tell you that that doubting is you wondering whether or not the Lord is going to bring a physical healing or not. And I don't think that actually fits the text at all. Because I think what that does is that leaves you and I walking around kind of like wooden, like nobody bump me because I may start doubting. And it's just a very, very odd place in life to see somebody walk through. And I've watched people walk through that. I think there's actually something incredibly honest in acknowledging that, you know what, the Lord may not bring the physical healing. He actually may not give us tomorrow. James tells us that in chapter 4. And so, yeah, I've got questions as to whether or not the Lord's going to heal physically or not. But you know what, what I'm not doubting on, what I'm not questioning, what I'm not double-minded about, is his goodness and his character and his purposes. See, not being double-minded and not doubting is an acknowledgement that there is undivided loyalty in my life to who God is and his purposes in my life. I think it's entirely legitimate to have honest questions about, is the Lord going to heal and answer this prayer for healing, or is he not? There's lots of examples all throughout the New Testament of where you see individuals struggling with physical ailments that are not healed. The elders are to be called. They're to pray. These prayers should be prayed in the name of the Lord, according to the will of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Let's just step briefly through this. Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that the fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in Ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, is that a blank check? No, it's not a blank check. I'll answer the question for you. We don't have time for us to have a a response session right now. It's not a blank check. James would tell us that in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You desire, you don't have because you, you ask for things so you can spend them on your own passions. This isn't a blank check. This is a promise that as we come before the Lord, as we radically seek obedience before the Lord, as we begin to then radically pray that what our prayers become is in line with what the Lord wants, but we also pray to that end. Lord, if this is not your will, don't give it to me. I want what you want. John would say something very similar in his epistle. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. It's another promise. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, how do we know what his will is? Well, when we're looking at healing and physical health and struggling and these things, oftentimes, I'm not sure I know what the will of the Lord is. 
Because I've sat on the bedsides of people and I've prayed that the Lord would take this away. And he hasn't. And I've sat on the bedsides and with people and prayed that the Lord would take something away. And he has. There's an incredibly important promise for us that's found in the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul writes. And he says this, Likewise, the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As saints, I I will confess, I often don't know what to pray. But this is a glorious truth, that the Holy Spirit takes my feeble attempts at praying according to the will of God, and he translates them to be according to the will of God. He takes what I pray, and it gets sifted through, and the Lord hears exactly what is according to his will. So let me try to wrap this up, and I I hope this morning has made sense. We could spend hours on this. This is how I see this playing out here. And if you've read our elder position paper, it's riveting. You should all read it. If you've read it, the very last page cites this passage in James and says that one of the responsibilities of the elders is to pray for the sick and anoint them with oil. So we've clarified even in the process of figuring out what are the roles and responsibilities that elders have, this role, this responsibility. Here's how I see this playing itself out here at Grace. Firstly, seek all the medical, professional medical advice and wisdom that you can. God does heal and can heal through doctors. And that has to be a statement that's made on the front side of this because there have been way too many people that have died because they were told by some pastor that if they had enough faith, they would be healed and they never went to the doctor. There have been way too many babies that have died in the process of childbirth because they were told by some pastor, if you have enough faith, you'll be able to deliver without complications. But then there were complications. You see how damaging it becomes now when you have to find somebody to blame? you got to find a finger to point. So you need to hear me say, and hear me say loud and clear, seek all the professional medical advice that you can. God uses doctors to heal. Secondly, seek all of the spiritual support that you can. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Let people in. I think there can be a, a tendency and perhaps even a temptation that in the midst of the struggle we want to want to draw in to ourselves and we want to kind of close in and, and cocoon in some ways. And yet James is exhorting us, no, you don't, you don't crawl into the hole, you actually you crawl towards the body of believers. You go to them. Because they have a a function in your life that if you just crawl into a hole and ignore will leave you greatly lacking something significant. 
We let him in. Pray boldly for God to heal. Heal physically. Pray boldly for God to do that. But know while he can, he may not. And if he doesn't, he hasn't failed you. Because his greatest promise with you is an eternity with him without a body that's susceptible to sin, sickness, and death. He may heal physically here and now. And I think there are all sorts of ways in commands in the New Testament that gives us a green light to praying boldly that he does so. But he may not. If he doesn't, he hasn't failed anybody. But you have permission from this text to call the elders and ask them to pray over you. Ask them to anoint you with oil. And like I said earlier, that, that really is, is a twofold aspect that I see and understand. One is that the Lord would strengthen your faith. That he would allow you to count this trial that you're experiencing as pure joy. And that your faith might be strengthened. We're going to pray boldly for God to heal physically. We're going to ask him to remove whatever it is immediately. We're also going to pray that his will will be done. Because that's a prayer that reflects the prayer of Jesus in the garden. And that's a prayer that reflects the instruction that James gave us in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that instead we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and go and do this or that. So our prayer for you will be for your faith to be strengthened. For you to be physically healed. But for God's will to ultimately be done. I think failure, at least is what I see implied in this text, is not leaning into the community not calling the elders to pray, not finding those in our midst to uphold you as you battle and struggle with whatever may ail you. I think that's where James may say there's been a breakdown, there's been a failure. As those things happen, as you lean into the community, as you call on the elders, pray for you, to call on one another, pray for you, whatever happens, we will ask that will be done according to the will of God. We're going to pray boldly that he removes it. We're going to pray boldly that he does something miraculous. So I just want to give you an invitation if you are struggling with something, it may be weak faith, and I think there's a good, I think there's solid reasons why we could see in the text here this morning that that is to be prayed for and can be anointed with and for. And it may be physical. Let's talk this week. Let's figure out what it may look like for 
the elders of the church to pray for you and anoint you with oil. That your faith may be strengthened. That what you're struggling with physically may be removed. But ultimately that the Lord's will will be done. I think there's permission in the text for us to take that posture. And I think it's one that honors what we see throughout the entire New Testament and what God has said about physical, spiritual, the importance of both. So let me pray now. Like I said earlier, the band's going to come up. They're going to play. You've got about a 10-minute break. Hit the restroom. Grab your kids. God, I pray for those here this morning that may be struggling. God, I pray that you would that you'd strengthen their faith. God, I pray that even what we see here in James 5 might, might be lived out by them. They may indeed call the elders. And we may indeed have the privilege of anointing them with oil and praying for them and asking you boldly to remove what ails them, but to strengthen their faith as well and, 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 and submit them to your will. You who are gracious and compassionate, and have promised incredible things for us. God, help us to not doubt your ability, but also help us to not doubt your sovereignty. So Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would be radically committed to obedience and radically praying bold prayers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.